I, I need to clarify just real quick. I said that I was a recovering Baptist. Listen, I'm not shaming Baptists, okay? Um, I'm thankful for a lot of things that the Baptist church uh, shaped in my life and in my faith in Jesus. Uh, sometimes some of our traditions and our customs we grew up in can kind of hold us back sometimes unintentionally. And so one of the things I love about this place is you can, you can uh, come from whatever background you want to. And we consider this a place where we're multi-denominational. And so if you're a Baptist or a Methodist or a Catholic or a Presbyterian, wherever you come from, that's okay. You can stay that way till the day you die. And we're going to focus here on the things that really matter specifically around Jesus and the life that he has called us to live in. And that's really what we're talking about today. We're going to talk about this idea of hope and freedom and understanding what that means for us as a church. You know, I was thinking about this some in preparation for today. There's been a lot of really important critical statements made over the years that have led people to do something, that have led people to act in a certain way. I think about Martin Luther King when he stood and gave his I Have a Dream speech where he was challenging our culture in America to not judge people by the color of their skin, but to judge people by the character of their life. Now that was a powerful moment. That was a powerful statement where he declared that he was dreaming of that. But it would have been an insignificant moment had nothing changed in response to what he said. And I don't believe that we're everywhere that we could possibly be as a country yet in the dreams that Martin Luther King had in that day. But it did spur on some action and there has been progress made. And for that I am thankful. But when he said that or when you think thought about other moments, I was thinking about this even just the last couple of weeks. I, I, don't know where I don't know what your thoughts are about everything happening across the world in Ukraine with the Russian invasion. Uh, but it's been fascinating to watch Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, as he's led his people. And you might agree or disagree with some of the ways that he's led his people and, and, and been bold and courageous in that. But it was interesting, one of the statements that he made at the very beginning of the invasion on a phone call with the president of the United States, he simply said, I don't, or he said, I need ammunition, I, ammunition, I don't need a ride. And that was a fascinating statement, but I think it was a galvanizing statement for the people of Ukraine who said, he's, he's standing up for something he truly believes in and we're going to stand with him. Now, we'll, we'll, we don't know what's going to happen, but it's interesting because it was more than just a moment, it was more than just a statement. It's led people to act. And today, I want us to as we jump into this idea of hope and freedom, being a, a church on a, on a mission, a specific plan, a specific purpose, I want us to consider that. I want us to look at a statement in the Bible in Matthew chapter 16, which is a statement that Jesus made that's a powerful statement. It's short, it's brief, but it's a powerful statement. Every single statement that has changed the course of history over the years was so much more than a moment. It was all about the movement that it started after the moment that that statement was made. And we're going to unpack hope and freedom for the next few weeks and what it really means to, to live in hope and to experience the freedom that we find specifically in Jesus. And I believe that as we begin to understand that, we'll better understand for ourselves the best version of ourselves. That's, that's what my hope, that's what my prayer is, my dream for the next four weeks, is that we would be able to find a place where we discover the best version of you. Where you could say, I'm discovering something different. I'm experiencing something better than anything I thought I could be before. And I think this is what Jesus is pointing to as we pick up this passage in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. It says this, now when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now it's always important to know where things are happening. 
And in some instances in Scripture, it's, it's even more important. And I think in this specific instance, Jesus takes his disciples, his closest followers, to a place called Caesarea Philippi. The reason that's important is because this is not a place that the religious Jews, the religious elite, would ever consider visiting. It was about 105 miles from Jerusalem. It wasn't convenient. It wasn't safe. It was somewhere that was considered unclean religiously by those in Jerusalem. And yet Jesus decides to go to that place, and he's taking his disciples with him, and he's going to this place to make a specific statement Not to create just a moment, but to stir up a movement. And it's a movement that's still impacting the world even today that he's inviting you and me to be a part of. It's a place of pagan worship. It was a place that was risky, that was unsafe. And it's when he got to this place, he says, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So he's asking, who do, you, who do people think I am? Who, who, what do people describe me as? Continues on, it says, and they said, some say John the Baptist. They thought maybe John the Baptist had come back from the dead because he had been beheaded before this. And they thought maybe he came back to life and he was about to prepare the way for the Messiah. It says, others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. So some thought, well, maybe he's just, a, he's just another prophet that God has sent to speak truth and to teach his people the things of himself. And so that's what they share. It's always easier to answer a question when somebody asks you, what do other people think? than it is when someone asks, what do you think? So we asked them this question, what, is, what does everybody else think? And I think they probably didn't have a difficult time answering this question, but then he continues on and says, and he said to them, but who do you yourself say that I am? He makes it personal. He said, I, I know what everybody else thinks and what you think everybody else thinks, but let's press in a little bit more. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, we lose our notes, gone. Um, I've still got them on my phone, so you just have to listen to this. Jesus said, or Simon Peter, there we go, got it back. Jesus said to him, let's go back, hang on. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you yourself say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's important to understand. This is a very different response than what they gave for everybody else. What does everybody else think? This is a specific response, and Peter personally makes a confession. He makes a declaration of who he believes Jesus to be. Now, I don't think Peter had it all completely figured out. He didn't understand everything yet, but he was heading in the right direction. What he's saying, he's saying, you are the Christ, which means in Hebrew, the Messiah. In Greek, it's the Christos. What he's saying is he's saying you're the anointed one. You're the one that we've been hearing about for hundreds of years. You're the one that God has promised was going to show up on the scene specifically to set us free. To set us free from the oppression. To to set us free from being pushed back for our faith. And what he's thinking and what he's believing in this moment specifically is that Jesus was going to show up and he was going to give them a new hope. A hope of a different future. That he was going to show up and he was going to squash the Roman Empire and the Jews would be uh, set free from being pushed back by what the Romans believed and what the Romans preferred. And so in this moment, Peter confesses, he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then look what Jesus says. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, to understand who Jesus is, to have a true understanding A true recognition of the Son of Man, of Jesus himself, of the Messiah, of the Christ, of the Savior of the world. God has to give that to you. 
God is the one who opens our eyes. This is not something man can, can make you see. This is not something man can come up with them on them, for themselves. This is something that only God can do. He says, you are blessed. So every one of us in this moment, we are blessed because we are recognizing this. We have an opportunity to see this. God is using this moment right now even, maybe to open the eyes of someone who has never understood clearly who Jesus is. This is what Jesus is saying. And then he goes on into verse 18, and this is the money verse for really the next four weeks as we continue to teach through this series. He says, and also I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, by the way, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now there is so much packed into those three and a half lines. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, you're right, Peter. You're confessing what is accurate about me. And he says, and on this rock, this rock could mean a few different things, but I think they all ultimately land in the same place. Some people say that when he's talking about this rock, he's specifically talking about this rock being Jesus. Jesus saying this rock being him, the cornerstone. We sang about Jesus being the cornerstone as we started our time together this morning. Others say that, that what he's talking about is this rock. He's specifically talking about Peter. That name, it means rock. He gives him the name Peter and says, the rock. And he's saying, this is, this is you. You're going to be the one who starts this movement of people. Or maybe it's, and this is where I, I tend to land, which I think is all of this together, is this rock is the confession, the recognition of who Jesus is to Peter. You see, when we begin to recognize something and we confess something to be true, we confess our belief in something, there's a commitment, there's a responsibility that comes along with that. And I think this is the rock that Jesus is speaking about in this moment. He's saying, Peter, on this rock, on this truth, on this recognition, on this belief, this confession that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the anointed one, he is the Messiah, he is the one that is showing up to be the hope of the world, to bring freedom to his sons and daughters. This, this Jesus, he's saying, on that recognition, I'm going to build my church and when we read that and we think build church, I think if you're like me, your mind immediately goes to building a structure, a place, a building. What's interesting is in this passage, this word church was a common word, yet it's the first time we see it in the New Testament. Jesus is saying, I will build my church. The word there in the original Greek is ekklesia. And the word ekklesia was, in a, was, was part of just normal, common conversation for these disciples. But it didn't mean a building like this. It didn't mean a structure. It meant something different. This is what ecclesia means. A group of people called together for a specific purpose. You see, Jesus is saying upon this rock, this confession of Jesus being the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that is here to bring hope and freedom to a people who are in desperate need of hope and freedom. Upon that, I'm going to build up this group of people gathered around a specific purpose, a specific purpose of hope and freedom. I know for us, I think we tend to think about church as being a place. I think we demonstrate this unintentionally sometimes because when we show up to a church, whether it be here or another church, there's something that changes in us sometimes. And I don't know that this happens as much at Community Faith as maybe it has happened at other churches that I've been to in the past. There's a, there's a genuine authenticity that I, I sense here often. People just able to be real. It's like, man, I, I, I'm not all okay. I'm, I'm imperfect. And listen, if you're here today and you are perfect, you better hit the doors fast because we're going to mess you up real quick, all right? So just, just a warning, just to make sure you don't, we don't catch you off guard. But what I love about this place is a place to be real. But even in that, we have a tendency to show up at this place 
and begin to change our behavior from anywhere else we ever spend any time during the week. We change the way we talk. We exclude certain words from our vocabulary. I don't have to give you examples of that. Why is that? Because I think we begin to unintentionally in our minds begin to think about church as being a place rather than a group of people. You see, when we think about the church, we think about ecclesia. What's happening in this moment is Jesus is saying, I'm going to build this movement of people that's going to do something. It's going to make progress. What he's saying, he's saying, uh, you're, you're being invited into this movement of people. Church is not a monument that we visit weekly or monthly or when we feel like it. It's, it's, it's being a part of a group on mission, on purpose, intentionally pursuing something. Now, the disciples didn't completely understand this and all that this meant. They're still thinking Jesus is going to show up and he's going to establish this powerful military some, somehow. Somehow he's going to overthrow the Roman Empire and they're going to begin to live in freedom. And this is what their hope is, is based on. But shortly after Jesus said this to his disciples, he goes to the cross and he gives his life. All of a sudden, their world is completely shaken up. They're devastated. This is not what they were hoping for. And they probably found themselves in a place of hopelessness, feeling like their freedom was never going to be possible. But then on the third day, Jesus walked out of that tomb. We're going to celebrate that over the next few weeks, especially as we get to Easter. But after he comes back from the dead and he appears to the disciples, he charges them with this purpose. And there's a new understanding that Jesus didn't show up just to give them freedom and hope on this earth, but he showed up for spiritual freedom. He showed up to rescue them from themselves. He showed up so that they would have an eternal security. And they began to understand this after he came back to life from the grave. And before he ascended into heaven, he looked at his disciples. He said, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, you're going to be this movement of people that's going to go into all the world sharing this message of hope and freedom. And what did the disciples do immediately? The power of the Holy Spirit takes over. Peter, the rock, goes and begins to speak about this hope and speak about this freedom. And we read in Acts chapter 2 that 3,000 people trust Jesus with their lives. They step across that line of faith and they step into this new hope and this new freedom. And immediately they're baptized. And you see this movement of people, this church, this ecclesia began to blow up and explode. And it's continuing to work today. It's important not to miss what he said. He said, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Nothing will stop it. The church has seen kingdoms come and go. It has seen rulers come and go. The church, the church that Jesus gave his life for, the church that Jesus empowered, will outlast anything on this earth and is continuing to work. And you and I have been invited to participate in this same mission. Community of faith, a community of Jesus followers have been called together to participate in this. Now what's interesting is when you think about him going to Caesarea Philippi, he's gone to a place that's incredibly risky and uncomfortable and dangerous. I think it's important for us to recognize that because I think in the American church, we have a tendency to become too obsessed with our comfort and our safety and all the things we have around us to make us feel protected. And we miss out that in order to be a follower of Jesus and to be a part of the church that he's called us to participate in, in this movement, it's going to involve some risk. There's going to be times where it feels uncomfortable. It's, it's going to feel messy. He's calling us into that. 
We're obsessed with safety. We're, we're obsessed with keeping our kids safe. But what's interesting is I think until we step into risk, we never really experience the life that God has called us to experience and to live. I was thinking about this this week, and I, I began to think about my kids. I think we have a tendency in our culture to go to the extreme sometimes of protecting our kids from some of life experiences that might cause them some confusion or um, some fear or any, any fear of uh, not being safe, and we protect them, and we, we, we kind of hover over them like helicopters, and you've heard the term helicopter parents. Just a few years ago, my wife and I, we saved up money, and we went to Disney World in Florida and took my two boys and had a great time, and the most unforgettable moment of that trip was when we decided we were going to ride as a family the Avatar ride. Now, it's a virtual reality ride that, that you don't actually move. It's not like a normal roller coaster. I'm not a, I've never been a huge roller coaster fan. They've always made me a little bit nervous. I didn't ride my first roller coaster until I was a freshman in college, and the only reason I did at the time is because the girl I was dating at the time said, hey, let's go to Six Flags, and I couldn't say no because then I would be the lame boyfriend. And so I went, and I didn't tell her that I'd never been on a roller coaster before, but I, I went, and I rode a roller coaster, and it was terrifying. Mr. Freeze at Six Flags was the first roller coaster I ever rode. So we take our boys to Disney World, and we're waiting in line to get on this ride, and as we get closer to the front of the line, they're getting more and more nervous. And they're thinking, man, what are y'all doing to us? Why are y'all making us do this? I'm, I'm nervous. I'm scared. And so right as we get into, if you've ridden the ride, you know that you kind of go into this chamber and there's six seats for the ride. Well, there's four of us. And so the way that we sat is I was on one end and then Braden, my oldest, then Camden, my youngest, and then Brandy. We were going to kind of keep them safe and protected. Now, now Cam was kind of freaking out because when Cam gets nervous, he gets vocal. When Braden gets nervous, he just gets quiet. And so we're sitting there, and I could tell that they're nervous, and Cam literally starts losing his mind. He's like, this is crazy. If you've ridden the ride, you sit down, and they put this, this thing kind of pushes up against your back. And it's like you're riding one of those dragon creatures in the movie. And as soon as that thing hit Camden's back, game over. He was like, this is terrible. This is the worst experience of my life. I mean, he is shouting this in this chamber. And we're like, it's fine, it's fine, you'll be fine. He's like, y'all are the worst parents in the world. Like, he literally said that. He's sitting over here, and he'll admit that he said that. And now we're like, I'll be fine. The lady that was sitting next to my wife looked over at my wife, and she said, I think he's really scared. And she's like, oh, he'll be fine. Hey, suck it up, dude. You'll be, you'll be good. And then we rode the ride. Nobody threw up. We walked out of there. You know what, you know what memory of that whole trip we talk about the most? that instance, because they experienced something that I could not help them understand what the experience would be without them experiencing for themselves. Now, I could have said, hey, you know what? You're scared. All right, let's, let's, let's hang back here. We'll protect you from that. Let's not do that. And some of you are like, Wes, you're a terrible parent. Don't judge me. I got issues, all right? I got more than just that as an issue, and so do you. But that my point is, is I think that's what God is calling us into as a church. He's saying, hey, it's time to take some risk. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be messy. But in that, and as you step into that, and as you trust him in that, you're going to experience things that you cannot even begin to imagine, that are unexplainable in the ways that he wants to use you and use your life and use this group of people to bring hope and freedom to the world. Jesus has been doing this, his church has been doing this for thousands of years, and nothing has stopped. I believe the best version of you is the version that is all in on this mission of hope and freedom. And over the next four weeks, we're going to unpack four specific parts to the best version of you. And in the time that I have left, I just want to press in on one specific one. But let me give you all four for just a moment. As we think about this whole idea of helping people find hope and freedom in Jesus, this is the mission. This is the mission for the church, is to help people find hope and freedom. Not in a place, 
not in a group of people, but specifically in Jesus. And it's risky. It's messy. And I believe that you begin to find the best version of yourself as you step into this, and it looks like this in four different ways. The best version of you knows Jesus. Personally, a relationship with Jesus and begins to experience the hope and freedom that comes from that personal relationship, that personal belief in Jesus. The next thing that the best version of you is is someone who grows together with other people. You want to really grow in your faith, grow in this hope and this freedom, then surround yourself with a group of people who love you and love Jesus, and it will accelerate the growth that you are experiencing in Jesus. We'll talk more about that next week. The third thing is that this person lives generously, not just with their money, but with their time, their energy, their emotion, everything that they are is leveraged for this mission, to make a difference, to make an impact, to be a game changer in the world around us. And ultimately lands in a place where we are consistently inviting others to come and see who Jesus is. Because as you begin to participate in this, you can't get over Jesus. You can't get over the freedom that you've experienced and the hope that you have in Jesus. And so you can't help but keeping your mouth open talking about it all the time. One of the things I love about community faith that really kind of fascinated from the first day that I, I found out about this place before I came on staff here was some of the things that Mark and Laura had done over the years in bringing hope and freedom to people that had no idea who Jesus was. And they didn't show up and start teaching them all the things about Jesus right away. They began to show up and they found people that were in hopeless situations that weren't experiencing any kind of freedom in life, much less freedom in Jesus. They began to love them. They began to walk in friendship with them. One of my favorite stories is the story of the orphanage that was built in Costa Rica by you, Community of Faith. We said we're going to live generously because we want to make a difference, not just here in our backyard, but across the world in foreign countries. And so you went to Costa Rica and you donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to build this orphanage, to bring hope to children who had no hope so they could experience a different kind of freedom that they would never be able to experience before. And then in that, teach them the ways of Jesus so they can fall in love with Jesus and become ambassadors for his hope and freedom for themselves. It's a beautiful picture, but what I love about that is that it's not here. We didn't do that here. We did it in a different country. It's evidence that this church, this ecclesia is not about a place. It's a reminder of that. I think this is what God is calling every single one of us into. And for today, I want us to just really land on this point right here, knowing Jesus. The best version of you knows Jesus personally. Which leads me to the question, very simply, do you know the real Jesus? Do you know the real Jesus? Do you personally have a relationship with him where you've said, Jesus, I, I trust you. I recognize what it looks, to live, looks like to live a life surrendered to you, and so I want to follow you. It's impossible to trust someone that you don't know. So as you continue to know him, the more your trust grows, the more your trust grows, the more you follow with ruthless abandon because of his goodness that he has for you. This is what he's calling every single one of us into. Do you know the real Jesus? Several years ago when I was on staff at a different church up in the Metroplex, Dallas. I know, forgive me, I lived in Dallas for a little while. Um, I was on staff at a church, and it, wasn't a, it was a big church. It wasn't a huge church, but it was big enough that you didn't know everybody that attended there. Like, you didn't know everybody by name. And my oldest was probably two, two and a half. He was still a toddler, and we were walking around at Lowe's one day. And listen, when you, some of you know, like when you go to 
Lowe's with a toddler, like all you're trying to make sure of is, is that he doesn't die, all right? Because there's like forklifts and there's crazy people trying to carry out tons and tons of lumber and uh, sheetrock. And so I'm just, I'm hanging on to my kid and we're walking through the store and this couple walks up to us this, and, and they said, hey, Wes, how are you? And I was like, hey, y'all. And I was like, man, I, I don't know who this is. And they walk up like they've known me for years. And I mean, super friendly. And they're like, oh, is this your son, Brayden? And I was like, yeah, this is Brayden. I said, hey, Brayden, say hi. And so we're, we're kind of having this just kind of small talk, cordial conversation. And I could tell that the conversation kind of shifted when they realized that I didn't know their names. And I felt bad about that. It, dri- it drives me crazy when I forget names. But it happens all the time. It's just, I mean, we, we're all that way. The reason I tell you the story is because then several days later, I was in my office and my pastor calls me into his office, and he says, hey, Wes, I got an email from a couple, and they were really disappointed that you didn't know them when they ran into you at Lowe's. And he said, listen, I, I get it. He said, I know. He said, it's a big church. You're not going to know everybody. He said, I just told them that I was going to talk to you about it. Just want you to be aware, maybe try a little bit harder. And I was like, man, that's, that's a real, I, like, I'm, I'm kind of a people pleaser anyway, so it bothered me that I disappointed someone. But then I started to think about that, and I was like, man, that's, that's crazy. Because they thought... And they had this expectation that because we were in the same proximity every single week, and maybe because we even knew some of the same people, they knew some people that knew me well, that we had some sort of a relationship, and I, I wasn't aware of that. And the reason I tell you that today is because I think that's sometimes where we fall in our relationship with Jesus. We know a lot about Jesus. We know a lot of people who are in a relationship with Jesus, who know him personally, who have trusted him personally as the Lord, as the ultimate authority in their life the Messiah, their hope, their freedom. We know how to pray, we know how to sing, we know how to attend church, but we don't know Jesus personally because we never truly pursued to know him personally. I think this is an important question, maybe the most important question you'll ever ask yourself is do you know the real Jesus? And maybe you're sitting here today and you're like, Wes, I, I hear you and I've heard this before, but I just really don't think there's any hope for me. Like, you don't know my past, you don't know where I've been, you don't know what I've done. I didn't say this in the first service, but did you know Caesarea Philippi, one of the things that made it stand out was the worship of pagan gods. And they specifically worshipped the god Pan, who was kind of the god of the earth. But Pan specifically looked like a goat. And so people that would worship this goat would, would be told and would be um, shown specific ways to worship this goat god by participating in some bizarre, crazy things with goats. That's, that's, that's bizarre. That's kind of mind-blowing. I can't wrap my mind around that. I've never, I've never had anybody come up to me in all my years of ministry. I've never had somebody come up to me like, hey, Wes, listen. Man, I'm really struggling. Got this, I just have this tendency with goats, and it just, it's just weird. Like, no one's ever come up to me and said that. And if they did, I would just look at them and say, that's a bad idea. <laughs> and that's ridiculous. But my point in telling you that is just simply this. There is nowhere that you've gone that is too far from the reach of Jesus. And so no matter what you've experienced, what's been done, what you've chosen to do, you are not untouchable to Jesus. Jesus is chasing after you. And I think the reason he went to Caesarea Philippi to make this statement is so that you would understand that your mess is not a big enough mess to scare Jesus away. He wants to know you. and He wants you to trust him. And as you begin to trust him, he wants you to experience the hope and the freedom that is found in him. And as you trust and you begin to follow Jesus with your life, your spirit is literally reborn. You have a new identity. 
You have a new future. Your security in heaven eternally with your heavenly father is secure from that moment. I believe there is a moment where you recognize who Jesus clearly is and you say, I want to follow you. I want to trust you. Even though you don't have it all figured out, you don't have to go get cleaned up and get all the answers and then come to Jesus. Just come to Jesus. And I think there's a moment where we come to him and we begin to trust him. But I think we fool ourselves even in that. And we find ourselves in a place where I say, I've trusted Jesus. I've begun to follow Jesus. But I still have some of those emotions that I've always dealt with. Some of that insecurity is still raging in me. Some of the consequences of some of my poor decisions, the, the, the results of those consequences are still in front of me. And I'm struggling. And we get to a place where we think, I'm going to trust Jesus and everything's going to be fine. But we've got to realize that trusting Jesus is more than just a moment. It's a pattern of progress that we begin to step into. And oftentimes I think we get to this place where we think, I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to try this out. I'm going to show up at church. I'm going to sing the songs. And we never really get to experience the freedom. And so we get discouraged and we throw in the towel because we've not continued to pursue the relationship with Jesus, to continue to know him. Because the more that you know him, the more that you trust him, the more that you follow him, and you begin to experience more freedom in him from that insecurity. You know what's crazy? My wife and I were laughing about this the other night. We were sitting outside because the weather's been amazing. You know where we have some of our biggest fights? The drive-through window. I know, it's weird. And my boys could stand up here and tell you because they've witnessed it. It's ridiculous. I don't know about you, but when I get into the drive-through line and I show up at a fast food restaurant, I get in line knowing what I'm going to order. Everybody else in my car, in my family, doesn't think that way. They think, oh, we're going to get there, and we're going to get up to the display, and then we're going to decide what we want. And I'm like, guys, y'all got to get it together. All right, you need to have your life right. You need to get healthy. Healthy people aren't going to the drive-thru line at a fast food restaurant. But we get there, but what's crazy is we'll sit there, and I, I, have, this, I have it all figured out. I have it all ready. My wife will kind of lean over the console, and she's like looking at everything. She's like, what do I want? Some of you are laughing because you're that person too. There's more of you. And I'm like, can we, can, we, can, we, can we get this going? Like, they're waiting on us. And then we're trying to figure out what the boys want. I was like, do we not know what we want already? And I, I, I get ridiculously upset and frustrated. And I started asking myself this question this week. Why am I like that? Why do I do that? I'm a rule follower. That's, that's my nature. I want to go by the rules. I want to live by the rules. My wife, what are rules? They're just suggestions. And that creates tension for me. Because there's times where she wants to bend the rule a little bit, not follow the suggestion, and it makes me uncomfortable. And I've had to ask myself the question, why does that bother me? And I figured out why it bothers me. Because deep down inside somewhere, there's an insecurity in me to impress people, to make people think that I've got it all together. I don't know where that comes from. I'm beginning to figure it out. I think some of it comes from things way back in my past, some things that I've experienced that stirred up this insecurity and it rears its head at the most bizarre times. Listen, as you begin to trust and follow and know Jesus personally, he's gonna begin to expose some things in your life. You're gonna have to sit back and begin to ask some specific questions of why is this this way? And it's not because Jesus wants to make you feel bad. 
Because Jesus wants to do something in that to redeem it and to restore it so that you can better understand it, so that you can respond in a way that brings hope and freedom in your life and in the lives of those around you. He's calling you to trust him. You know, to follow Jesus, to know Jesus, means you've got to become comfortable with what's uncomfortable. Because it's in those moments that God does some of his greatest work in our lives. I think this is what Jesus is talking about. He takes them to an uncomfortable place. He says, I'm going to create a movement of people that are going to follow me. They're going to trust me. Galatians 5.1 says this, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. He's saying, you've been set free. Why do you keep putting the handcuffs on? Why do you keep putting yourself in the prison cell? Why do you continue to put yourself in a cage? Because you've been set free. This woke me up yesterday morning. On a Saturday morning, I was so frustrated. I was like, I just want to sleep. It woke me up. And I went back to the passage in Matthew chapter 16 where it says the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And it made sense in a way that's never made sense to me before. I think what Jesus is saying is he's saying, hey, I'm calling you into something that's got purpose and that's got movement behind it. I'm calling you to live a life of mission, of purpose and meaning. He says, but the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He's saying there's going to be a struggle. There's going to be a fight. There's going to be a fight for freedom. And I started thinking about the personal implications of that. I'm not a rocket scientist. I majored in recreation in my undergrad, all right? But I do know this, and I think I'm intellectual enough to recognize that you don't take gates into a war. Nobody goes and fights a battle with iron gates in their hands. They go to war with weapons. So why does he say gates? I think what he's saying is he's saying, as this movement of hope and freedom begins to take off, And as you personally begin to experience the hope and freedom that is found in Jesus, the enemy is going to go to work, and he's going to work overtime to hold you back. And he's going to try to keep those those gates closed, to keep that chain. I don't know why I said goats. Got me all messed up. (laughs) But he's going to try to keep you trapped. He's going to try to keep you caged up, imprisoned by some of the things in your past that try to sneak back into your life, to discourage you, to distract you. He's going to hold you back and keep you down, push down. What Jesus is saying, he said, but don't forget, those gates have no power over you anymore. When Jesus went to the cross, he said, to tell us die, it is finished. There was victory from your past when you begin to trust and know Jesus. Jesus is saying that. He wants to declare that as part of this statement where he begins to show you the point and the purpose of your life, the point and the purpose of church. We get distracted by this. Romans chapter 12, I'm not going to read the whole verse, but I want, I, the, the author of Hebrews is saying, rid yourselves of every obstacle and sin which so easily entangles us, thinking about the things that maybe push us back, the, the thoughts of unbelief, the, the habits, the tendencies that seem to prevent us from living in freedom. He says, let's run, the, run with endurance the race that has been set out for us. Run with endurance the purpose, the mission and this word race comes from the word agon, which is the word that we get the word agony from. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be tough sometimes. It's going to be uncomfortable set before us, looking only at who? Looking at Jesus. Why? Because he's the originator and perfecter of the faith. He spoke about it. He declared it in Matthew chapter 16 in Caesarea Philippi, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The joy. Who's the joy? You're the joy. 
I'm the joy. We're the joy. Jesus didn't need us. He didn't need anything from us. He didn't need our singing. He didn't need our prayers. He didn't need us to accomplish the work on this earth. But he went to the cross anyways because he's that crazy about you. He loves you. And when I remember that and I remember the love that he has for me, then when those insecurities start to creep up in my mind and the thoughts of some of the things in my past, things that make me think that I'm not valuable, that I'm not worthy, that I'm not lovable, that there's no, there's no way my life is going to have any meaning in the days ahead. I remember that, that there was somebody that knew all of that. He knew my past, he knew my present, he knew my potential, yet he went to the cross anyways. Why? Because I was the joy. You were the joy. And it gives me security. It gives me hope. It gives me freedom. This is what Jesus is talking about. This is what he's calling us into. I'll just kind of land with, with this. What, what would it look like in Northwest Houston if a group of people began to live in this hope and freedom? Stop caring so much about what people think or what people might say or even some of the things that maybe come back into our mind from days past. What would happen if we stopped paying that much attention to those things instead of, and instead started focusing on the hope and the freedom that we have in Jesus? What would happen? What if there's more? What if there's more for your marriage? What if there's more for your family, for your children, more for this community as we begin to step into this and really know Jesus and fight for the freedom that he's called us to to live in? What would that look like? As we begin to understand more of what this looks like in our lives, I think we begin to understand the best version of ourselves because when you find hope and freedom in Jesus, you find the best version of you. Would you begin on this journey with Jesus? And as you begin on this journey with Jesus, walk that journey with Jesus with all of us, because that's what this is all about. And maybe you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus. You've never really said, Jesus, I wanna know you more, I wanna follow you, here's my life. You've never, you've never stepped across that line of faith and said, Jesus, here's my life, I give it to you. Maybe today is the day that you recognize for the first time that that's what he's calling you into. If that's you today, I I want to, number one, celebrate the opportunity you have to step into that, but I want to encourage you to take that step. You're like, how do I do that, Wes? You just, that's that's you and God. Just have a conversation with God and say, God, I, I recognize your love for me. I recognize that you sent Jesus for me. And I want to follow him. I want to know him. And I want to make a difference for him. Show me how to live. Tell him that. Confess that to him. Confess to him who he is to you. And you begin to experience the hope and the freedom that is found in Jesus. Here's what I want us to do. I want us to celebrate and close this way. I want us to speak the name of Jesus through song. It's a powerful song, and I know that maybe it's getting close to lunchtime, and you're maybe tired of sitting, so you're not going to have to sit. I'm going to ask that you stand in just a moment. But don't leave, because I think this could be a powerful moment for you or for someone next to you. But together for us to figuratively link arms together and say, we speak Jesus over our lives, over our church, over our community, and over the world, believing that only he can bring the hope and freedom that this world so desperately needs. Hope for a better future and freedom from the things in our past. So as we sing this, let's sing this out, declaring this together. God, we love you. We trust you. We thank you for who you are and we thank you for what you did. You came after us to rescue us. God, I pray right now in this moment as we 
speak the name of Jesus. Would you begin to do miracles in us, even right now in this moment? God, would you give us courage and boldness to follow you, to trust you in every area of our life? And God, right now, I pray for those that are in the room that maybe have never made a decision to trust you, that as we sing this song, would you draw them close to yourself? Would you pull on them so strongly that they can't avoid it, that they would just simply say, I trust you, I wanna follow you, I wanna know you. I give them the courage to take that step. We celebrate you, we thank you, and we sing to you in this moment in Jesus' name, amen.